Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, welcome back to Thick and Thin with me, Katie Bilotti. Hope you guys are doing well. I have been trying very hard for the past few hours to find my peace, find my zen, relax in a moment of utter chaos because (laughs) it has been so loud outside of my window today and yesterday. There's this drilling project happening. I don't know what they're working on. I've been like staring at them throughout the day, like with little breaks in my day, trying to figure out what they're working on. I've been close several times today, very close to going down there myself and just like asking them, what are you working on? Because it appears that they are just ripping up the entire street right in front of my apartment. Like only, I don't know how many feet this is, but like only my apartment building's size in relation to the street, like only that strip, like right in front of my building. And I'm like, of course, just my building. The whole rest of this busy street is perfectly fine, except for the chunk right in front of my door. But that is always how it goes, right? Always how it goes. Anyway, it's always loud outside of my apartment, especially during rush hour time, which is always when I end up recording these because I just have a lot of research to do before I record many of these episodes. So I do it during the day. And then around like four o'clock is when I decide to record when I feel like I've had enough caffeine, here I am, 4 p.m., and it's rush hour, and there's some drilling. But you know what? I am choosing to just let it all fade away, let it all fall off, and just focus on one thing at a time. That has just really been my method to my madness as of late, just focusing on one thing at a time because it can feel when you really stack it all up, all the things you have to do, all the things that you want to do, all the things that you could do that you don't even know you want to do or that you don't even know you need to do. When you really think of it that way, it ends up just really overwhelming you and really just weighing on you and preventing you from getting even one or two things done if you're thinking of it in a pile of things, you know? So I'm just trying to not see it like that, see it as a one thing at a time. I'm gonna do my best with each thing and then move on to the next. And that's just kind of how I like to work. Doesn't always work, but I try. So today's episode, guys, if you hear any noises, you know what's going on. Actually, we don't know what's going on specifically, but you know that there is something annoying happening outside my window that is out of my control. So anyway, today's episode is going to be a good one, especially if you as well, have been dealing with some 
really intense, overwhelmed feelings recently. This is the one for you. I have some stories to tell from real life people that are very interesting, but also just myself, who I guess is also a real life person who can sometimes be interesting. (laughs) So I have some stories. I have some general thoughts. I have some methods of coping with those just really overwhelmed sensations where you feel like it's almost like this fear that you feel. Like the the feeling of being overwhelmed morphs into fear. It's almost like when you don't treat an illness and it morphs into something worse. Like I think that untreated feelings of being overwhelmed and stressed, they do turn into fear. (laughs) Or maybe it's fear all along. Who knows? I'm going to talk about it today. And hopefully this episode will just I don't know. I want it to make you feel seen. I want you to really walk away from this episode feeling like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm not crazy. Let me look at it from this other perspective. Let me see it from this other angle because maybe then I can actually process how I'm feeling about things. Because I feel like after summer, the weird period of time where the weather doesn't really know what's going on and you don't really know what's going on and you don't know if you should wear a sweater in the morning or a tank top and the same kind of goes for relationships and just the general life that you live, like going to work every day. Like it's very similar. Like when you wake up in the morning and don't know what to wear, it's like I wake up in the morning and I don't know what to do with my life. I feel like it really comes to a head and gets really intense, those sorts of feelings around this time of year, because, you know, you're over the summer vacation, uh, warmth, excitement, summer Fridays of it all. And now it's fall. It's about to be winter. It's going to be cold. We're going to get our seasonal depression on and it's just going to be a little bit tough. So I think as we ease into this transition, the transitions are always hard. There's times where you're going to feel really, really overwhelmed. And I, with this episode, want to help us with this. I'm not an expert, but I have some things to say. So let's get into it. So last night I was supposed to meet up with some friends to work on this project that we're doing together. And all afternoon I was just feeling so weird, like not sick, but just in a weird funk all day. And I realized I just was in a really horrible frame of mind. I wasn't going to be able to be as creative and on as I wanted to be. So I let them know. I was like, I don't think... I can meet up tonight and I felt so bad and I just, you know, obviously said sorry a bunch of times. Um, And, you know, I just told them I was feeling a bit stressed and I just needed to like decompress, go for a walk and just kind of feel it out, figure out what's going on. Just one of those days, you know, we all have those days. But after doing that, after getting myself out of the house, after going for a walk, you know, focusing on my surroundings, my phone turned off, tucked into the side of my sports bra, no headphones, no distractions. It was while I was doing this, trying to figure out what was going on with me, trying to just like walk it out of me almost. I realized that the real feeling that I was experiencing wasn't necessarily stress. It was this like fear cocktail, I want to call it, like a mix of fear and the general sensation of being overwhelmed by that fear and the lack of control that I felt. And I feel a lot of the time, and I feel like in my more adult years, have realized it more because obviously when you graduate from being a younger person who relies on your parents to being in your adult years where you rely on yourself, like really on yourself to do all the things that your parents once did for you, feed you, clean for you, take you school supply shopping, like especially this time of year, I feel like that we feel very alone and very, very adult, (laughs) very, very... um, 
just weighed down with responsibilities because it was around this time of year when we were growing up that we, you know, our mom would take us shopping and a lot of us, okay, not all of us were lucky enough to have this type of childhood. I understand that. But it was a time where the biggest stress that we had to undergo with back to school was, oh, what if people don't like me? Or what if I get a bad teacher? Or what if, you know, but it was all stuff that we were still kind of housed in this, like, you don't have to have it all figured out yet. Like, you don't have to have it all figured out. Yes, and maybe the biggest pressures you're dealing with are social and things that are really, really small, small, small fish in comparison to what you'll be feeling years from now when you're an adult, when you're sitting in your apartment in New York City and you haven't made dinner for yourself and you realize, oh crap, it's 9 p.m. and I haven't eaten anything and you end up getting something bad for you. And you know, we've all been there. Um, You have to like literally take care of yourself and some people even another human being if you have other people that depend on you now in this age. But anyway, back to what I was feeling, a fear cocktail of sorts. I'm afraid of many things and I feel like a lot of us carry around a small little vial of fear and you know a little pocket-sized little miniature amount of fear and stress and anxiety every single day obviously some days that sensation those feelings grow but for the most part it's gone to a place where if i really think about it like what am i afraid of right now i can think of something always i can always think of something but on some days It's all I can think about, you know? It's not something I have to really consider like, ooh, is there something that's really bothering me right now? It's like the only thing I can see that day is what's bothering me. So I think yesterday what I was really, really struggling with was just this general fear of failing that really just came to a head and started bubbling over the pot. Like I'm afraid of looking back on my life and realizing that I made the wrong move, that I messed up, that I said no to an opportunity that I should have said yes to, or I said yes to an opportunity that I should have said no to, because if I had said no, then I would have had this miraculous, amazing, perfect idea pop into my head and I'd be a millionaire (laughs) or something like that. Like I'm afraid also, I think yesterday, the biggest thing was I was, I'm really afraid oftentimes of admitting hard things like the fact that I might be lonely or the fact that I might not be as good as other people at the things that I should be good at. I feel afraid of other people being more successful than me. That is one thing that really is just always poking and prodding at me these days. I'm afraid that I'll become irrelevant and my entire career depends on me being somewhat relevant, you know, and I'm afraid of another one of my friends getting engaged because it just tells me more and more every single day how single I am and how many people have had an opportunity to date me but haven't and what's the reason for that. So then I start to dig and think about all the things that could be wrong with me because I'm single and it's just a number of things. There's always something in the back of my mind maybe and I think you know, that's just a human response to things. Like there's always going to be a certain element of having your senses ready to fight these fears and fight these threats. But yesterday it really just came to a head and I was really, really overwhelmed by anything and everything really just stressed me out yesterday. And all these fears just became bold faced, like really just staring at me. And I just wanted to process it. So I went for my walk and I got to thinking. I got to just really thinking. And I heard it said that 
when we're overwhelmed, you know, sometimes it's okay to just do nothing, just bask in that nothingness, go for that walk and bask in it, turn our phones off, sit and just stare and disassociate, which is a word I'm seeing everywhere now, like disassociating, like that face that someone makes, like the blank stare off like into space when you're literally somewhere else. You're physically one place, but you're mentally somewhere else. Like that's disassociating. And apparently when you're feeling overwhelmed, it is okay to or kind of encouraged for you to do nothing, go for a walk. I mean, going for a walk is not doing nothing, but what I'm saying is maybe put your work away for a second, put those things that require a lot of your brain and your mind, your brain juices, put those things away and just either move your body, focus on something completely different, disassociate from that environment that is maybe causing or has triggered your stress, you know, has triggered your overwhelmed feeling, which does help me to a certain extent, it really does. Though I found that when I try to do nothing, a lot of the times when I'm trying to do it, it's almost like I'm inviting anxiety to join me on the walk or (laughs) to join me in sitting or join me when I'm reading a book and I'm trying to read and I can only read the one sentence over and over again because I'm, I'm anxious. I think about all of the possible solutions to how I'm feeling, what the things are that I need to eliminate from my life, the things that I need to stop doing, the things that I need to do more of or less of. I think of my action plan because I am human and when you're going through something tough or you're faced with something you know, looming, something that could really hurt you, you're going to think of all the possible ways to get around that thing or you know, we're just problem solving by nature. We are. So I'm always thinking like, oh, okay, I could just do this. Like if I just do this and this, then maybe I'll be fine. Or actually like I always just think I will be. So I'm like, okay, I'm so confident if I do these things, which I know I'll never do because, or I won't do for a long time. It's going to take me a lot or take a lot of energy for me to do it. But I think, oh, in a perfect world, I'll do these things and then I'll be just fine. I'll sit back with the Corona on the beach and look at my life and think, oh, wow, I've made it, you know? But We can't bring ourselves to do some things that we know will be really good for us because we don't want to lose the control and diminish our pride and sometimes taking necessary steps in order to get in a spot where you feel more proud of yourself in the end. Those are hard steps to take because a lot of times it requires letting someone down. It requires uncomfortable conversations. It requires stepping completely out of your comfort zone. Like they don't say that get out of your comfort zone quote for nothing. Like you're not in your comfort zone. You don't feel comfortable. You feel uneasy and unwell when you're doing these things, where you're quitting your job, when you're breaking up with someone, when you're having a tough conversation with your boss about needing a raise. Like there's just so many scenarios where you really don't feel comfortable when you're doing it, but obviously the end result is great. And I don't think people talk enough about when you're gearing up to do any number of these uncomfortable things, when you're gearing up to potentially, maybe, if you have the courage one of these days, to have a hard conversation with someone, to be honest with someone about what you really need, to break up with someone, to move to a different place because you don't love where you are, or just any number of hard things that do get yourself out of your comfort zone. No one, or I guess people do talk about it, but not enough about the just general feeling of being so, so, so overwhelmed. It just takes over you. It's like a tidal wave. It hits you. You feel overwhelmed with 
just everything with feeling, with wondering what's going to happen, with trying to prepare and to do list your way into a place where you don't feel so overwhelmed, but you end up feeling even more overwhelmed. So you go for your walk and you try not to think about it all and you think, okay, I'll just like muster up that 20 seconds of insane courage from that movie, We Bought a Zoo, (laughs) if you guys have watched that movie, and I'll just do it. But in the meantime, I just have to clear my brain and not think of anything. But then we're visited by anxiety on our walk and we're thinking of all the solutions and how to problem solve and we're not... We're just still kind of in it. We're still swimming in it. I was listening to Brene Brown earlier today, who I love so, so much, and I'm sure a lot of you do too. And she brought up this researcher, Carol Gohm. And Carol used the term overwhelmed to describe an experience where our emotions are intense. That's obvious. Our focus on them is moderate. And our clarity about exactly what we're feeling is low enough that we get confused when trying to identify or describe the emotions. So in other words, on a scale of one to 10, I'm feeling my emotions at about a 10, like full speed ahead. I'm feeling these emotions. I'm paying attention to them at about a five. You know, my focus on them is not as high as the feeling of them. And I understand the emotions at about a two. So that's why when you feel overwhelmed, It's just a lot of feeling, a lot of feeling just like running rampant in your brain, in your soul, in your stomach, and you don't know what to do about it. And it's just like a general confusion that's just washing over you. That's how feeling overwhelmed is to me. And I'm always feeling quite a lot. You guys know that if you listen to this podcast. Like this is something that I love about myself a lot of the times because it makes me a really good friend. It makes me an interesting person. You know, I think that any person that feels a lot is an interesting person. By feeling a lot, I've gotten very good at understanding what it means to be a human being. You know, I'm constantly reminded of how human I am. But the issue with feeling things so, so deeply, you know, we can think back to my episode on highly sensitive people and the energy that you expend, that you put out by feeling all these things, by constantly just getting sucked into these overwhelmed confusion seas, you know, by being there and doing that, like you put so much energy towards feeling that you don't really have enough energy to give to paying attention to those feelings and understand those feelings, let alone figuring out how to deal with them. But you feel like zapped for power. You feel like you don't have anything else to give. So you go on a walk, you look at the trees, the people, and you see how they interact and you try to step out of your own life for a second. Like that's what you do to cope. And you just try to avoid it. Like, you know, it's kind of like reading a book, like you sink yourself fully into someone else's life and problems and emotions and you put yours on hold. And that is why people love various forms of entertainment because it literally sucks you out of your own life for five seconds. Maybe briefly, you'll have moments where you're watching a TV show or a movie or reading a book where you're like, oh, that reminds me of this one thing going on in my life or this reminds me of this person that I know. And you feel a brief moment of like, wait a second, I'm back in my life again. But then you're sucked back into whatever fictional problem is happening on TV or something like that or just something that's happening to someone else that isn't you. You know, sometimes I feel better when I step back into my own life after that, though, and my problems and my decisions, especially when I'm watching something that's so horrific and I'm like, wow, my life is nothing compared to this or like I have nothing to complain about. But sometimes I I sink back into my own life after moments of like reading or walking or just focusing on other people. And I think, oh, this again, like back to this. I'm so sick of this day to day. I'm sick of this. 
And now I want to talk about something very interesting though, something kind of segueing, but very similar. So it's obvious in life that we're all extremely complex. We're extremely different, the same in some ways, but infinitely different in other ways. Like a bunch of us could look at a painting, like just a bunch of scribbles and see completely different things. We could look at clouds and someone could see a rabbit and someone could see a sun or like, okay, maybe a sun is a bad thing to say there. Like obviously the sun is in the sky, but you know what I mean? Like we can look at some things and two of us will see totally different things. We could both listen to the same song and one of us could like it and one of us could hate it. You know, someone could be deathly afraid of one thing, very overwhelmed by one thing. And another person could look at that thing that overwhelmed the first person and feel the opposite and nothing of the sort and feel honestly, even maybe at ease with the thing that totally overwhelms the other person, you know? So the other night, this is story time, I was at the Don't Worry Darling movie premiere with Warner Brothers. It was really, really cool. The movie was amazing. I don't want to give any spoilers, but it was so well done, so well shot. The cast was amazing. Just everything down to the outfits, down to the music was just so great. And it was very unexpected. It was a thriller, which I was not expecting at all with the trailer. So highly recommend watching that. It comes out this Friday. But they hosted this fabulous star-studded after party after we watched the movie at the Bowery Hotel. All of the festivities of the day, watching the movie, going to this other hotel for a little pre-party, like all sorts of things we did this day. We didn't end up getting to the after party until like 11.30. So it was a late night, to say the least. I brought my friend Colby and... We got to the Bowery Hotel. We showed our like special tickets. I was like fighting exhaustion, but so excited and adrenaline filled and like buzzing from the movie, which was so good. But it turned out at this after party that there were a lot of celebrities, like people from the cast, a lot of really prominent people in the film industry. Like it was a very star-studded affair. So I went straight to the bar. My friend Colby, I dragged her over to the bar. She ordered a skinny spicy marg. I got my extra, extra dirty vodka martini as per usual. And when I went to grab the glass from the bartender, like the bartender had put it on a little napkin as they do on the top of the bar, I grabbed the glass and he goes, he like looks down at my hand and says, oh, great minds. And I'm like, great minds. I like blinked at him. I'm like, wait, what? Great minds? So then I thought he might be complimenting my phone case because my phone was sitting on the bar, like right near where he put the drink. And then I don't even know what I said, like thanks or something. So I was like really confused about what he had meant by saying great minds. But then he like picked up his own hand off of the bar and showed me his middle finger. And it wasn't like flipping me off. I know when I say that, like showing his middle finger to me, it sounds like he was flipping me off. He was not. He just showed me his the top of his finger, which is when I realized that we have identical tattoos. So you might know that I have one tattoo and one tattoo only on my whole body. Like I only have one as of now, as of this recording date, and I don't know if I'll get any more, but I really do love this one that I have. When I was out in LA, I got these three dots stick and poked onto my finger. And my reason, you don't always have to have a reason I know with tattoos, but my reason was I wanted three dots for my three family members. So my mom, my dad, and my sister. So the bartender had seen this tattoo. He had the very same one on a different finger. I have mine on my ring finger. He says on his middle finger. But he was like, oh, you have an ellipsis tattoo. So do I. And just him saying that, like, you have an ellipsis tattoo. So do I. Really just sparked something like sliced into my brain. An ellipsis tattoo. Like, I always refer to mine as three dots, not an ellipsis. 
And the bartender asked me if it was stick and poke. I was like, yes. And then he said, same. My ex-girlfriend gave it to me and made a face. And I thought about how he described it as an ellipsis. Like ellipsis, that word, what it means, it comes from a Greek word meaning a mission. And that's you know what an ellipsis does. It shows that in a sentence, when you're writing it out, when you're typing it, when you read it in a book or in an article, it shows that something has been left out. Like when you're quoting someone, you can use an ellipsis to show that you've taken out some of the words, focusing only on the ones shown. It doesn't take out the meaning of the whole sentence, but it just kind of it points to what you're trying to say, the point you're trying to make. So I thought about this the rest of the night. Like this guy had put an ellipsis on his finger. I'm like I have three dots. He has three dots. He sees it as an ellipsis. I see it as the three most important people in my life. While he sees it as something that was given to him by someone that's no longer in his life, his ex-girlfriend. Like I see it as this positive, you know, reminder and I obviously didn't ask him if he sees it as positive or negative, but I can assume just by the tone that he used when he was talking about his ex-girlfriend that gave it to him, like he doesn't see it as a positive. But he also sees it as an ellipsis while I see it. You know what I mean? It's just like so interesting. The reason why I bring this up is the same way that we look at a tattoo and one person could think, oh, this is something that is really sentimental, really you know, beautiful to me that really has a lot of meaning that makes me reflect fondly and positively. Another person could have that very same tattoo, could look at it and think negative things. So that point's been driven home. That's kind of the first thing here. But in the same kind of relationship, the same way, two people could view something and one could see it as being something super scary and fear inducing and overwhelming. And the other person could look at the same thing and see it as something so exciting and exhilarating and something that they want to do. We handle fear differently, okay? We're all so different, yet often the same, but still different. We handle fear differently. You can think of it like a surfer and a rock climber, like two adrenaline junkies, okay? The rock climber might be afraid of the ocean. They might not even know how to swim, while the surfer not afraid of big surf and the unknown lurking beneath their board might be afraid of heights. Like two people that are kind of the same in the sense that they both seek thrill and adrenaline could look at something in the opposite person's realm and think it's terrifying. You know, what the climber does is totally out of the question for the surfer and vice versa, though both of these people are thrill seekers at their core, different but the same. So, Speaking of rock climbers, this is where I'm going. I'm, you know, we're going down the road of Katie's thought process. Speaking of rock climbers, today I want to tell you guys about this guy that I just learned about this morning that I still have not stopped thinking about, (laughs) not in a romantic way. He's married and has kids or a kid, but we just have to talk about him because this story I'm going to share with you, it ties everything together. Okay, here we go. There is this guy named Alex Honnold. Alex is without question the best free solo climber in the world. And by free solo climber, I mean he scales the sides of mountains and all sorts of rocky natural places without the use of a harness, ropes, cables, and none of that stuff. Nothing that will catch him if he falls. It's just him and nature and climbing and heights. And all of this sends absolute shivers down my spine. I would never in a million years, like, I don't think I can climb up like one foot of rock, let alone an entire mountain. But anyway, Alex has done amazing things. He has free soloed. So like I said, climbed without ropes, the free rider route on this mountain called Al Capitan. 
which is widely considered the greatest rock climbing achievement in history. So you might know El Capitan from the popular MacBook desktop background, which I remember thinking about when I actually saw it with my own two eyes in person. I went to Yosemite National Park on my road trip adventure in my RV years ago, years ago, aka two years ago. Feels like forever ago, though. Or it feels like just yesterday, depending on the day. But we went to Yosemite. We did some trails, hiking, not mountain climbing. <laughs> but um, I remember seeing this mountain in person. It's just this crazy thing. It's 3,200 vertical feet of sheer granite. Look up a photo if you guys can. It's just bonkers that someone could climb this. Like I remember walking around Yosemite and we saw this group of people staring up at the mountain with binoculars. And once we got closer, we found out that they were actually watching a person, like a person you could not see if you didn't have binoculars or a intensely zoomed in phone camera. And this guy or girl, I don't even know if it was a girl or a guy, was scaling the side of the mountain. And I doubt it was Alex Honnold, but it was something, a similar sort of thing, someone with very similar interests and thresholds when it comes to fear. So Back to Alex, this feat of free soloing this specific part of El Capitan, it typically takes seasoned climbers four to five days to fully complete, and that's with ropes also. Alex Honnold did it in less than four hours without ropes. Like, just look up pictures of this and you'll understand the full level of like, how the heck, how is this possible? And I want to think about this. I want to think about Alex Honnold and not think about the extreme strength and intelligence to be able to do something like this. Let's take that off the table. So let's not consider the strength and the intelligence. What I'm more interested in is how this guy seems to lack any sort of fear. He is dangling. Like in some of these photos and videos I'm watching of him, he is holding on to the rocks with one hand, no ropes, and apparently like does not have fear of death, of falling, of losing his life, like he's doing something he loves. He's having this adrenaline rush and apparently has no fear. Or he's just found a way to tuck it into the back of his mind, put it on the back burner, not focus on it, and just focus on what he's doing. So it's interesting. Lots of question marks here. Not sure how he does it. But a lot of people share my intrigue, share my questions, have all of the same questions as me. And back in 2016, some people did something about it and tried to figure out the why here. So a science writer and a team of neuroscientists had all of the same questions about Alex Honnold and his brain. How is he able to climb massive mountains with no ropes, sometimes for 50 hours at a time? Like I watched an interview and he said that he had been climbing on this one mountain you know, with a friend for 50 hours. And the guy was like, oh, like, when did you sleep or how many hours of sleep or how did you sleep when you're up there without, you know? And he goes, oh, no, we just didn't sleep. It was the adrenaline. We just kept going. Like, how does he do all of this and doing these climbs and be so chill about it? Like, when you watch him do these climbs, I've watched some videos and some photos, like National Geographic style. This guy is stone-faced, chill, absolutely like if you just zoom in on his face and don't know where he is or what he's doing you would think that he is just it's just another day at the office just relaxing chilling but he's actually thousands of feet up in the air clinging to rocks that could break at any moment and moving on these rocks with no ropes to catch him if he falls most of the time so 
like I said, people had interest in Alex's apparent lack of fear. Was he born with no amygdala in his brain? We've talked about the amygdala before on the podcast, like I think over a year ago. So you guys might remember or you guys might just even know about the brain. Many of you definitely know more than I do about the brain, but the amygdala is often referred to as the brain's fear center. It's pretty much the center of threat response and interpretation of threat. So put simply in basic terms, it's like a pair of almond-shaped nodes in your head, in your brain. And it basically, this part, the amygdala identifies something that is scary. It's like, okay, this thing is scary. This seems like a threat, something that should be feared and figures out what to do to get the body prepared for the threat. So identifies, interprets, you know, figures out what to do, rapid heartbeat, increased adrenaline. It gets you ready to essentially like for fight or flight. That's what the amygdala does. So in rock climbers and surfers and anyone who's doing anything scary or just even me when I'm crossing the street, like, you know, my amygdala is working to react to things that might be threatening to get you ready, prepared, get your body ready to fight or fly. Pretty much any normal person would look at the concept of scaling a mountain with no harness or ropes as something very scary. I know I do. But if many of us were forced to try scaling a mountain, got up a few feet, maybe miraculously, our amygdala would be firing away. Sweaty palms, rapid heartbeat, increased blood pressure, increased adrenaline, maybe an anxiety attack or two. Like many of us would not appear calm and stone-faced, though Alex somehow does. So what gives? Does this guy just not have an amygdala? Like that's, you know, been a thing before or is it damaged? Like how does he do it? Anyone out there who has ever experienced fear and hated themselves for it would be dying to know how he does it. Like for me, I would love to know how to not be anxious or just having this very visible fear in certain scenarios, like public speaking maybe, or like, you know, there's just certain ways where you're like, I would love to know this guy's secret. Like, how does he do it? Imagine all the cool things that we could do and accomplish and say if we had no fear. Like we could also maybe wind up dead though because of those things. Like the amygdala after all is life-saving and death-preventing. Like that's the survival instinct kicking in, right? So everyone was dying to know, neuroscientists, writers, myself, everyone's dying to know how he does it. So there were some scans done. Like I said, I'm finally getting to this. We're going back to 2016 here. There were some scans done of Alex's brain. MRI technician James Pearl was looking at it with Jane Joseph, a neuroscientist. And Jane asked James, very similar names, can you go down to his amygdala, like scroll down on the scan, look at his amygdala. We have to know, she said. She's like, there's got to be something funky going on there. Medical literature actually includes cases of people with rare conditions, such as uh, this disease called Erbach-Wythe disease, which can cause damage to the amygdala. So it's possible, and it's been seen before, people that have damaged amygdalas. And while these people generally don't experience fear, they also tend to show really bizarre symptoms, such as a total lack of concern for personal space. Like you can be like nose to nose with a guy that has a damaged amygdala and he will have no concept of knowing that he is so close to you, like making direct eye contact, just like different strange behaviors that Alex Honnold just didn't exhibit. This guy was totally normal besides his extreme lack of fear and, you know, sensation-seeking behaviors and stuff. So the MRI tech was scrolling down on the image of Alex's brain looking for the amygdala, and voila, there was in fact a functioning amygdala in his brain. 
So he has a fully functioning, healthy fear response center. What else is going on in there then, they thought. So he was in this machine and the brain was being monitored in his MRI machine and the scientists were showing Alex some images to measure his brain's response. And based on the response, they were going to see some things and figure out some answers. So they called these images that they were showing Alex strong response images. To any normal person, these photos would elicit a very strong response. They're meant to disturb or excite. At least in non-Alex people, they would evoke a strong response in the amygdala, Jane said. I can't bear to look at some of them, she said. Dead bodies, blood, guts, just disgusting scenes, scary scenes, etc. They measured Alex's brain's response to these images that might cause fear or excitement in any normal brain. Then Dr. Jane tested a control subject, a high sensation seeking male rock climber of a similar age to Alex Honnold. So like basically the same dude, but not Alex Honnold for comparison. And in the MRI brain images of the two men's responses to those high arousal photos, brain activity was shown in this electric purple color on the scans. So they were comparing the two scans and the brain activity, like high brain activity, was shown in this electric purple. The control subject's amygdala lit up with nearly every photo, like lots and lots of purple, but Alex Honnold's amygdala was gray. He showed zero activation. Nowhere in the fear center of Alex Honnold's brain could the neuroscientist spot any sort of activity. So to reiterate, he has an amygdala. It's apparently perfectly healthy, according to these experts. But the things that he's seeing, these like scary images or like exciting images or whatever, are just not eliciting any sort of response from him. Like he's just not afraid of these things. Like, yeah, he has the ability to be afraid, but he's not. Like, how crazy is that? So one could say that the same sort of thing could be happening as Alex is climbing ropeless up the side of mountains. Like, you know, like he could just, it's possible for him to feel fear in these scenarios, but he just doesn't. His brain is not activating him to feel this fear, like to start the process of reacting, if that makes sense, which is really interesting. And Dr. Jane, she says, where there's no activation, there is probably no threat response. Like he really could be feeling no fear up there, which is so interesting. Like imagine, I'm going to link the article where I read all of this. It's super interesting and it's much longer. So you guys can read every little bit of it. But one other section that stuck out to me was when Alex was talking about his humble beginnings with free solo climbing, like this fearless guy, literally fearless. He said that he grew up super shy. And one of the reasons that he chose to free solo without ropes was the fact that he couldn't always find a partner. Like he couldn't always muster up that social courage to ask someone to be his partner with the ropes because you need a partner to rope climb. Without ropes, you know, you don't need a partner. So he opted for learning how to free solo at the age of 19, I think, because he had like some degree of shyness and social anxiety. And this took me back to the tattoo conversation I had the other night and my general thoughts surrounding how we are all the same but different. Like two people could look at the same thing. One person could be afraid and the other person not one bit. And the question I'm trying to take a stab at now, knowing all of this and talking about all of this is how do I truly feel the fear, really feel it, let myself feel it? A lot of the concept I talked about earlier of being overwhelmed and feeling you know, step one is feeling, steps two and three are paying attention to them and understanding it. Does Alex Honnold pay attention to the fear and understand it? Or does he just nimbly glaze over both parts of those things? Like, I wonder. 
Anyway, this is just a little something for us to chew on while we navigate our lives, all different, but all the same in regards to fearful moments, being present in them. Like we might not all feel it the same, but it's there somewhere for all of us, I'm certain. And I don't know, stories about Alex Honnold just make me, maybe it doesn't make me feel any better. It doesn't make me feel great, to be honest, because <laughs> I'm like, damn, that would be nice. But it does make you think because while this guy is named one of the most fearless people on the planet in his free solo climbing adventures and his lack of fear while doing that, it does make me think about that quote of his, like, you know, I didn't quote him verbatim, but when I just said that he had had this social like shyness and couldn't ask people to climb with him or like, didn't want to, it was kind of like a, a lone, lone wolf of sorts. Like the fact that I sometimes do also have like the fear of reaching out to other people or, um, you know, letting people help me and things like that. And while obviously myself and Alex Honnold are two completely different people because we both are not the same in the climbing element of things. Like I would never climb a mountain. If I had to, I'd be terrified the whole way. And I would definitely need like 17 million ropes to hold me on there if I did do that. But we both share maybe a general like shyness or we did at one point. Like while we all are so different, we are all the same in some ways. And maybe he doesn't feel fear when he's climbing, but he does feel fear in social situations. And how interesting is that? Like certain like high intense images and like really crazy, gross, scary looking things don't ignite something in him while the concept of talking to someone else and asking them for help does make him feel fear. Like it's just so interesting. I think our world is set up in many ways for a one-size-fits-all sort of experience. And I think in recent years, it's gotten better. I think that people are accepting more often that people can be different. But I think like just every conversation I've had recently about either celebrities or just people we know or like whoever being wrong or like, I can't believe she said that or I can't believe he did that. We forget, I think sometimes for a quick moment there that we're all so different and that we all interpret things differently. We all make different choices. And all of that. Like we're so different in all those ways, but at the end of the day, we all are the same in the fact that we all think that we're doing the right thing. We all think for the most part when we're doing these things that not everyone will agree with, we always think that we're doing the right thing in that moment. Even if we're not proud of it, maybe we we still think it's the only option we have or it's the right thing to do. While when you step back from it and like look at all the people that are taking in this information of what you did or how you navigated this scenario in your life, everyone will have a different thought about it. But at the end of the day, we're all seeking the same things. We're all seeking control. We're all seeking joy. We're all seeking a certain level of comfort. And we all think that we're, you know, one choice away or one decision away or one stroke of luck away from our perfect life that we've always wanted and maybe we haven't even been able to fully visualize but it's just going to hit us soon it's going to come soon like you know we always think that way and we live that way and i've discussed this concept of before of always thinking that you know if if only you just change this one thing like once i do this then i'll be happy once i do this once i get this once i'm at this milestone then it'll all just make sense and fit together but i've talked about how that's a toxic way to think and you you just can't you can't do that all the time because then 
you'll there's just no finish line. There's no finish line. And you by thinking like that, you you think that there is one or you convince yourself that there is one when there is no finish line. We just live and then we die. And <laughs> if you're spending your whole life waiting for the next thing, you're never ever in the moment at all. And what a shame that is. So, you know, that's a thing. But I think that just being in that mindset or any mindset where you're considering all the things that you have to do and all the things that you will do and all the things you haven't even thought that you will do someday and just getting super, super caught up in it all and overwhelmed. Like that is that is where I've been this week. That is where I am often. And I was just having one of those days yesterday where I was just dealing with a lot of difficult people and I didn't know who I could trust and people were the root of my fear and overwhelming feelings yesterday. Like I was just so sick of people, so over every single person that I was talking to and dealing with yesterday that I was just overwhelmed by it all, you know? So I turned off my phone. I went for that walk. I walked through the village. I let my mind wander and I processed everything. And I just, you know, it's just one of those things where every week I get stronger. Every week I learn more. Every day, every second. But like I think about it on a week by week basis because when, you know, with this podcast. But whenever I start losing hope in human beings specifically, when their flaws are the only thing that I'm able to see, when I can't see myself ever being compatible with any of them, like I just put myself at a different vantage point. And I think with just feeling overwhelmed in many different areas, like maybe people aren't the thing that's bothering you today. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's your job and like just something you're working on. Whenever you're feeling overwhelmed in a certain category, a certain area, what I do, what I think, yes, a walk, yes, separating yourself, yes, nothingness, but also putting yourself on a different level, at a different vantage point, stepping back, looking at it from a different way, a different perspective. I was feeling overwhelmed with every person I was talking to yesterday, every person I was dealing with on a work level, on a personal level, on a hinge level. So I went out, turned my phone off, put it in my side of my bra. I always do that walked around, no distractions, and I chose to look at people around New York City where I was and not look at them through that lens of, I hate you, I hate everyone, everyone is flawed, everyone makes me feel lesser than, like I hate that girl with the good outfit, I hate this happy family, I hate this couple that's walking by holding hands. I didn't see them that way anymore, I didn't see them that way. I changed the lens. I moved myself physically from the place where I was feeling so negative and filled with hate. I got my shoes on, I got myself out the door, I put on a different lens. And I really think for me, it's visualizing this lens being like put on. It's like I put on a new pair of sunglasses or something. And I chose to let that go. I chose to take off that negative lens and put on a new one and try to focus on the good stuff. I tried to look around and I went to the park. Washington Square Park is the perfect place to do this if you live in New York City. And just look around and really look. Look at how people interact with each other. Look at how I was specifically standing near the park where the little kids play. Like there's a specific smaller park in the larger park where the little kids play and like the nannies and the parents and, you know, it's really cute. Obviously, maybe some people could find it creepy that I was looking at kids, but I was just walking by and I noticed a few interactions, like just two little girls squatting and looking down at the grass and like playing with the worms and this one little boy screaming to his buddy that he saw a rat and like just like human interactions that make you smile. Just watching like an old couple walk around and watching this one girl was going around and just giving roses to random strangers 
And this other guy asked me to sign a petition for this water act or water bill that will make our water cleaner and was taking time out of his day and like sweating in that disgusting heat yesterday to go around and get people to sign a petition to make our water cleaner. And just all sorts of things where you could see human goodness, like you can see the good and you can see how together we are better, together we are stronger. And if we keep like pinning ourselves against other people and seeing the negative so, so often, it's just really, it's, we're not going to get anywhere. There's no progress with that. And I feel like a politician right now, but you know what I mean? It's like, I think when you get in that funk in whatever category of a funk that it is, like for me, it was people hating yesterday. But if you're in a funk, just try to do a complete 180, change the lens, change how you see it. And you'll realize that we literally are all the same. We have the same general hopes for ourselves, though the details might be different, but generally we kind of chase the same feelings. And, you know, there's some that are adrenaline junkies that chase crazy moments of scaling mountains and feeling that adrenaline. But, you know, I get adrenaline from a really good cookie or <laughs> like, yeah, you know, being out with my friends and having a really good night. You know, we chase the same feelings, though. We get them in different ways. We're all the same yet different. That is just like the theme of Thick and Thin this year. I can tell you that, honestly. But it's just interesting to think about what we do when we're overwhelmed and how to tackle it. And though I still haven't figured it out fully, I think that chatting about it in this episode has kind of been me taking a stab at it. So let me know what you guys think. What do you do when you're overwhelmed? And, you know, just tell me, tell me about it. What do you think? What do you feel? I'm ready for dinner. So I like can't think anymore. But thank you guys for listening to this episode of Thick and Thin. And I will talk to you all next Thursday. Bye. Bye. 